I just you did what you had to do. stumbled into what was happening in history at that moment. Yeah. The first time since military service that I had been able to get my mind quiet without drugs or alcohol. What I'm talking about is, is close to heresy, but watch out. Yeah. You are stepping into what might be called evil. I am <laughs> teaching evil to some of your viewers, but many people would see suicide or murder as wrong. I've been here for three months and no one has threatened to kill me. The war in Vietnam was getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. It was clear that the military was going to grab me right away to give me two python plague. There would be 20, 30, 40 deaths from bubonic plague. Mental illnesses are the same everywhere, maybe three, but certainly two who really tried to kill me. All of the others had died. It was a 50-50 bet whether I would survive the night. Well, they didn't think I'd live. The surgeons did this miracle. At one point, I was psychotic, right? We're returning from a war zone to a peace economy is a shock. Learning German in a psychiatric hospital. The most helpful people were the alcoholics. I've worked with American, mainly, military, who've been in war zones in Bosnia-Herzegovina, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. Anywhere from 15 to 25 Vietnam veterans would get together. Two guys had grenades, <laughs> and one guy had a Claymore mine out in his pickup truck. I will not talk about the question in every society is what do you do with these people who can't function and need help and can't pay for it? A third of prisoners are mentally ill. How do you get improvement health for a whole community, for a whole group of people with limited resources? Mental health and psychiatry and the treatment of mental health are way behind the rest of medicine. Successfully treating people with mental illness has not progressed a great deal because we can throw medications and bring people down. And, and that's, a, you know, you should be good and you should do what God says. <laughs> Seeing yourself and others in terms of good and evil. I'm good, you're evil. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Every time, always. Watch out. At some point, Five or six women got together and each said to the other, oh, the guru did it to you too, huh? At which point the whole community exploded. Wow. Cultural expression of them is different. They did it in the Kiwi style because I was his dead brother with a mask on and so he had to kill me and take the mask off for mental health. And so we're still in the Middle Ages. We're still in fear. Five months in hospital, taking them an hour and a half to get me out of the car. But I was their first save. No one was willing to bet that I'd keep my legs. For a psychiatrist <laughs> to be hallucinating, you have lost something big time. What would you say to your past self? I'd say... Hello, more. Hello. <laughs> I think the best way to explain and introduce you is to give a wee explanation about why I think you're the perfect person to have on this podcast. For me, you have been in my life for as long as I can remember, been in dad's life before me. And watching, I've got a vivid memory of watching you come up our steps at our home throughout my lifetime. And I remember 
originally dad saying to me when I was little, pick up your marbles, pick up your Lego, and because you're on your crutches coming up, which we'll touch on. And throughout my life, I watched you come up those stairs originally with two crutches and then come up slowly with one crutch. And then there was a decent period of time where you'd be able to walk in and up the driveway without any. And I remember so clearly throughout the weekends that you'd come stay with us. You'd go swimming, you'd go for your walks. And then alongside that, I was very blessed and honoured to be able to listen in to conversations and your journey in your life alongside you and dad. And then as I got older, to be able to join them. And your mindset, your journey, everything about you, I feel and have always felt so privileged to be a part of and experience and have around me. And I think you're one of those people that I don't know if there'd been another chance or someone else could rope you in to putting a microphone in front of you. Unlikely. (laughs) And so I've taken it on myself to gift some of that into the world because your journey, I know, has already, in the way you have tackled lemons in your life, has not only helped yourself but already impacted many other people. I thought that the ripple effects of that could be extended just a little bit more by having you on a podcast, so welcome. I have on my list that I had been collecting to ask you questions that we'll get to near the end, that the story of the pythons always has come up throughout life, (laughs) and we will touch on that because it would be rude not to. For some context, Mort had a journey of coming out of med school. At what age were you when you... 27, 26. And you entered very quickly into the war. A year of internship and then uh, one month or less after that entering military and two weeks after that arriving in Vietnam. And as many people did, suffered severely from PTSD. However, your attitude or how your next steps prevailed was you actually entered into and studied. I went into psychiatry after finishing military service. I then took a year off because my head was scrambled. I needed space and so uh, a Swiss friend who was also going into psychiatry said sure come join us. So I spent the next year, the first four months, learning German Mm -hmm. and then uh, working uh, as a volunteer at a Swiss psychiatric hospital. Uh, And then the last two or three months, um, I just took off and wandered through German-speaking Europe and got as far east as uh, Bucharest in Romania. And then you somehow, and this is a question even I know Dad asks all the time, you ended up in New Zealand, of all places. Eventually, but that was quite a bit later. That was 10 or more years later. However, to quickly give some context, expanding from this, this wasn't your last lemon. Mort was in New Zealand for a short period of time and then experienced quite a significant car crash. And that's where the crutches come in 
for my perspective as that's when I entered the world, I guess. So the Vietnam War, you were incredibly young. I was then 27. My time in the military, I was a GP. GP. I had no specialty training after internship. So I was very beginner mm -hmm. in medicine. And in the military, um, they used my interest in languages to, I was assigned to work with Vietnamese civilians mm -hmm. because there weren't enough Vietnamese doctors to go around. So some American doctors were placed in the remote, dangerous areas that the Vietnamese doctors didn't want to go to. And I was in a team with two other doctors, uh, 12 corpsmen. Uh, the other doctors liked surgery and didn't speak any languages at all. Mm -hmm. I'd had French in high school, and then once I learned that I was going into the military, I met a very nice Vietnamese family in Seattle who taught me some Vietnamese. And so... I never learned a lot, mm -hmm. but um, 150, 200 words um, was a lot more than virtually any other Americans in my area yeah. spoke. But it meant also that I reached out, engaged people. Mm -hmm. So while the other docs did surgery, I did public health for the civilian population. And public health is basically how, what can you do to improve everybody's health when you have almost no money and no resources? <laughs> There's a challenge. So some of it was education, mm -hmm. teaching people about infections. Uh, just small skin scratches in the tropics can get easily infected, but if you wash quickly with soap and clean water, mm -hmm. that can be prevented. So teaching people how to do that, uh, immunization programs and getting uh, immunizations out for polio, among other things. And then there was bubonic plague in the area, so wow. um, uh, rat eradication. And bubonic plague is not the dangerous thing it was in the Middle Ages because antibiotics treat it very quickly. Mm -hmm. But in our area, um, the rat population in the rice growing paddies, when they cut the rice, all of those rats would then go into the towns and cities. And the explosion of rats meant that a whole bunch died and then the fleas on them would jump to oh people. No. And they would be plague. There would be 20, 30, 40 deaths from bubonic plague. So one of my, one of the things I did in that time was prepare for the next uh, rice cutting season and uh, did a rat eradication project, went around. But before I could do that, before I could kill the rats, I had to do a flea index, which is to say you have to 
count the average numbers of flea per rat. And if there are too many fleas and you start killing rats, all you're going to do is cause another uh, bubonic plague epidemic. So you had to first test for fleas, and then in areas with high flea indices, you had to spray to kill the fleas before you could kill the rats. So I went around uh, uh, evaluating, and uh, it was quite humorous. <laughs> there was I had a translator with me because, uh, but I could understand just enough Vietnamese to get a sense of what he was asking. And we would go up to some lady, and he would say, "Hello, Mrs. Hung. Um, uh, can." the American doctor have your rats, giggle, giggle. <laughs> and she would say, yes, the doctor can have my rats, giggle, giggle. And we would give a uh, trap that would catch them live. Wow. And so we would, the next day, go back and get the rat and the trap. And uh, what I had to do was to um, put the rat into a cloth bag then put that into a little plastic bag and throw in a sponge with ether on it and the rat's running around inside and it, the ether would anesthetize the rat and the flea uh, and so when everything's calm you take out the rat and scrape off to see how many fleas you get and save the fleas to make sh send them off to see if they're infectious, <laughs> and then kill the rat. Wow. So I went around the whole province doing this, and there were only two areas that had too many r fleas per rat, so we could kill rats starting right away. Yeah. Uh, and then in those two areas had to dust and then retest, and finally we then we could kill the rats. Stuff I can imagine you never thought you'd be doing when you started studying. Well, it is not something one is taught in medical school. When did you find out that you were going to be going into the military? Oh, that was in 90... That was in the 60s mm -hmm. when the war in Vietnam was getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And since I'm single and didn't have specialty training in medicine, it was clear that the military was going to grab me right away and put me into something. But it was during that time in medical school that I realized that psychiatry was where I wanted to go. Beforehand? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Fascinating. Uh, but I also knew that I had to grow. I had to I just have more world experience, you know, yes. going straight from studies into psychiatry was I needed something else but I didn't really expect it to be military yeah I guess you wanted to have expected it all to be what it ended up being hmm. whilst you were in Vietnam how long did you serve for I was in Vietnam one year and then I had a whole two-year commitment and so the balance of that time was spent uh, in San Diego at wow. the Naval Hospital, where I took care of the dependents, the wives and children of active duty military. It's fascinating how I can spend so much time with you throughout my life, and then in a short period of time, I learn all this 
new stuff about you that I never thought to ask or that never came up in conversation. Pieces of the puzzle fall back into place. You have some pretty incredible stories. One of which has come up many times. Would you be able to explain how you ended up with some pet pythons in your life? Oh, yeah. Um, my job was to go around from one district to another in the province and help the local nurses, midwives, um, healthcare workers, and teach and support them. Uh, and in one of the areas, the uh, Tutakui, the major who is the military and administrative senior person in the area, was very grateful for all the work I had done for him and his people. And his way of saying thank you, he knew that Americans liked pets. And so just as I was about to leave the last time, one of his sergeants came up with two bags, each with a python. And that was his way of saying thank you. <laughs> <laughs> to give me two pythons in sacks that would otherwise have been sandbags. And, and so, so I got, got these things, things and, and then, then the helicopter came in and had to, to that, that was the way to get, get out from, get get from this district because it was a dangerous area. So I went up to the helicopter and usually a helicopter, you know, jumping in with your hands is no difficulty at all. Yes but with two bags of heavy pythons, I couldn't get in. So the rear gunner came out and pushed me and my pythons uh, into the uh, helicopter. <laughs> and then he told the captain what he had just done and came back and said, the captain just told me that if either of those gets loose, we're to throw them and you overboard. <laughs> oh, wow. And as you can see, they didn't get loose. Yeah. Uh, but then uh, I got back to the house where I'm staying, and uh, Cochin, the woman who is housekeeper there, it turned out she had grown up with pythons, and she knew wow. exactly how to take care of them. Amazing. So we made a little cage for them and took care. And then finally uh, she said, you don't need to keep them in the cage. Um, if you let them in the house, they'll take care of the rats here. They'll keep the house clean of rats. Full circle moment. So we did, but it meant that every time I came back to the house, I'd have to sort of look around to see where the pythons were. <laughs> oh, here's one. Okay, yeah. And oh, there's the other. Okay, yeah, fine. So I'll know where, yeah, yeah. where I am. It's not something you're trained to cope with in medical school. No. No, not even close. Did you feel like... I feel like I know the answer to this. Did you feel like your training prepared you the best it could to head in? It, it gave me core base information, but like all university education stuff, <laughs> it's only the beginning. Yeah. You really learn the stuff after you get out and are active and get your hands dirty doing things. What was the time period, because you've now mentioned that beforehand, you already knew where you're looking at going. Mm-hmm. 
what was the time period between going forth and what made you decide this is exactly what I'm going to do? Well, I already knew from medical school that I wanted to go into psychiatry. Yeah. Um, that was no question. But there was a year between leaving military and entering the specialty training yeah. uh, in psychiatry. Did you have any support during that year coming out? Support? Um, I had family and friends. Yeah. But I didn't have any uh, military or other input wow. no therapy no wow. counselor and this might be a very silly question but during service did you did you realize the impact that that was going to have on your life and exiting out or had no, no. idea no, I, I just you did what you had to do. stumbled into what was happening in history at that moment yeah <laughs> what a line throughout that year you said you understandably had to take space and that your head was scattered as it would be. What do you think helped you get through that year? Well, the people, the friends, uh, the Swiss friend, and then learning German in a psychiatric hospital is an interesting way of learning a language. The most helpful people were the alcoholics uh, who just loved to talk and would often help me. Uh, one of the difficulties um, with German is dialects. Uh, it, there are many different dialects, and the dialects in Switzerland are so extreme that people from northern parts of Germany have great difficulty understanding the Swiss when they talk. So I had studied formal German, which is based on northern Germany, and arrived in Switzerland and started listening to the Swiss talk to each other and thought I had studied the wrong language. <laughs> How did you meet your Swiss friend originally? We had both uh, done internship together in that hospital. When you went in to serve, did you have anyone come with you from your medical school? No. No, just you. Just... And did you make any big connections whilst you served? I had friends. Yeah. Uh, none as close as that Swiss friend, but yes. uh, yeah, I had friends. Yes. What was it like coming back into, I guess, real world, real life isn't the right word. Real world yeah. is not the right word. But Returning from a war zone to a peace economy is a shock, yes. and part uh, a big part of the problem is that the war zone experience is so different from anything that people in peacetime know about mm -hmm. that you cannot talk about it. So yes. I have a few safe Vietnam stories that I can share with you, and then a whole bunch of unsafe that I will not talk about. Uh, it was a shock to realize how absolute that barrier is. I returned home. My father uh, was delighted to see me in 15, 20 minutes of, oh, how wonderful, and all of this, and then asked me, okay, tell me what was it really like? 
and I got about one and a half sentences into that, and he said, stop, we don't talk about those things here. Bing. Wow. Absolute barrier. And so with you or with yes. anyone else who's lived a civil peace life, um, no, I cannot talk about that. And do you find when you when you connect with people who have been in that war zone, mm -hmm. is there instant understanding and connection there? Or is there still that barrier that just changes for how it is? It's not instant, but quickly uh, people get it mm -hmm. that... I can hear them, I can understand them and appreciate them without any judgment at all. Just sort of, oh. The person who, you know, when I returned and was in San Diego, a group of other docs who had also been in Vietnam got together every week and could chat and talk with each other. Beyond that, I could talk with others military who'd been in Vietnam. And that was it. I couldn't talk with others beyond that. Wow. Until at some point, a friend of mine, I was visiting a friend, and she told me that, uh, oh, we're going to have lunch with this older lady, um, who I think you'll like. And it turned out this woman was Jewish, had been in some concentration camp in Germany during the war, escaped. Well, not escaped, but um, yes. survived yes. to the end of the war. And um, she asked me about my Vietnam stuff, and I was able to, uh, I started talking about the forbidden things, and all of a sudden I realized she can tolerate it. Huh. Oh, she's been there too. And so she had been in a war zone in a very different war, different circumstances, but she'd been there. Oh, anybody who's been in a war can, can hear me. Huh, interesting. So since then, I have talked uh, a lot. I've worked with post-traumatic stress and have worked with American, mainly, military, who've been in war zones in Bosnia-Herzegovina, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. And I'm still now, mm. um, at my advanced age, um, seeing people, seeing guys yep. who've been in war zones and need yep. to talk and are sort of aware that they need, they can only talk with somebody who's also been in a war zone. When you went into study second time round, mm -hmm. did what you'd been through, how you experienced, obviously you were on a very, like you said, you felt like you needed experience beforehand and mm -hmm. to grow. Mm -hmm. And then you're all of a sudden in a very different place that I think you would have ever imagined to be. Right. How did that impact you going through study? And did you find times where you got frustrated or you felt like what was being taught to you or what you were learning, there was a different angle that needed to be taken? It wasn't that logical and articulate, but I was aware of other things. Yes. Um, and the training was very useful. I'm very grateful to it. But it didn't do anything about war zone uh, extreme experiences. For example, um, one of my patients, I remember, had 
been in World War II and had been in horrible, horrible things in the Pacific and fell apart and his family was rich and put him in this private hospital where he was training. And he'd been there for many years um, and had gotten all traditional psychiatric care and therapy and no one had ever asked him about the war zone and the war experiences that had brought him there. And so I did. Yeah. And he realized that um, I could listen to him and engage as he talked about the nasty stuff that he went through in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, he started to relax and to open up and to get healthier and the um, administration people were surprised, a little shocked. What did you do to him? Did you change medications? No. Um, and eventually I was able to help him to leave the hospital, yeah. which the administration didn't like because he paid the bills. Do you think, um, that last sentence is really fascinating, do you think there has been times where based on the benefits that a patient has provided to the system, their health and their expanding on it has been altered or changed or not fully given to them or provided? Yeah, all of those things are tightly connected. Yeah. Um, psychiatry, unlike the rest of medicine, is always political <laughs> at this other level. Yes. That's why the state provides special hospitals for them. Yes. Where it doesn't provide special hospitals for surgery or infections or anything else. Because people with severe mental illness, schizophrenia, severe depression, all of that, can never, uh, never afford to pay for the services they need. So the question in every society is, what do you do with these people who can't function and need help and can't pay for it? And so a goodly percentage of them, especially if they get violent, uh, become criminal and are put in prison. <laughs> yep. So uh, in here in New Zealand, but mm -hmm. also in the US, Canada, Western Europe, about a third of prisoners are mentally ill or uh, are the cause of mental illness. What a percentage. I want to look back a little bit. Do you think coming, when you were obviously in Vietnam, you were in a very political environment. Mm -hmm. Do you think aspects of that helped prepare you to then move into a very different political environment that impacted? Well, it point? made me aware of the politics of it. Yes. And while I don't like it, the fact is we live in a political world and you will live in it and so you better learn something about it and be able to manage the politics of it as well as the healthcare and traditional therapy of it. What was your movement from heading into training and study and then moving out? Throughout it you probably knew you were heading, like you said, into the direction of soldiers and PTSD? 
That wasn't my intention. Uh, intention. The one thing that I got from that year in Vietnam was to think in public health terms mm -hmm. rather than uh, the traditional training of medical school is how do you give maximum benefit to this person in front of you? And to think instead in how do you get improvement health for a whole community, for a whole group of people with limited resources. That's a very different way of thinking. And so that was, uh, I took that into the training with me. And the training was almost exclusively in terms of how do you treat this person in front of you. But I was thinking and asking questions of how do you improve the mental health of a whole country, of a whole community, a whole area. That's a very different perspective to head into, but one that ultimately would have such a benefit to how you go about everything. And I can see how that flows into your further steps throughout life. Mm -hmm. So we have a gap of my knowledge between you coming out and studying and landing in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. What was happening, little rundown, what was okay. growing? At first, um, I finished that. I took off six months and made a trip around the world, just traveling to see things and get out and explore. And then went back and did uh, another six months um, of specialty training as a chief resident at Yale in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, which was in psychosomatic medicine, uh, mind-body relationship interactions. Uh, went from there to Seattle, where I was on the faculty of the medical school of uh, University of Washington, and ran an inpatient ward in Harborview uh, for three years. And uh, it, that was interesting because, and fun, in part because I was able to do public health for mental health in that uh, center of Seattle, which was um, mainly people were black and poor. Mm -hmm. And so a public health understanding of how to improve mental health services generally for a whole population as opposed to treating individuals began to make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Was it fascinating to see the impact of that change in? Well, uh, three years was too short a time yeah. to see impact. Um, I began, it taught me how and whom to work with yes. and how to engage people and what you can and can't do. Uh, but I frankly didn't see any significant impact in yes. the time I was there. Did you come up against challenges with people you're working with and status quo and their perception on how it should be treated and done and then mm -hmm. obviously you're coming in with a very different perspective? Yes, yeah. and they thought I was wrong. <laughs> but I would do, for example, one of the things I did was to have know of group therapy, but I did group family therapy. Wow. Uh, so 
um, the idea was to get the families of these people all together and three, four, five families all in one room and get them to talk with each other about how to cope with the fact of a family member with mental illness. And that was um, considered far out and different. That and is fascinating. Wrong by some of my colleagues. Uh, but they were nonetheless interested that I got some results yep. that they didn't get. That's fascinating because this will be such a wrong angle to take. In movies, you see in so many times where they are portraying someone battling a mental health issue that they usually portray the family and them in a session. So it's fascinating you talking about how that's been portrayed to us, but when you were doing it, it was seemed absolutely mind-boggling. Well, it worked. It, yeah. It, uh, the Without families were grateful for an opportunity to see it from different perspectives and to see that they weren't alone yeah. and to learn other ways of coping. And I guess also a safe space created for them mm -hmm. for conversation that wouldn't really be cultivated anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. It's interesting listening to how many aspects, little things happened in your life that I can just see time and time again coming through later on. Mm -hmm. What made you come to New Zealand? And why? And how? Because that is wild to me. Okay. Um, my, I had gone from that to one or two other jobs. I was living on the East Coast. Uh, I was living in a yoga community uh, because I needed something to help my mental balance. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, before that, I had been in one uh, more rural area in Washington State because after three years in Seattle, I couldn't handle it. I had to leave. Yeah. I just didn't enjoy that stuff. Yeah. And I don't like big cities. And I apologize to people of this big city. Very <laughs> beautiful, but no. Not your vibe. Uh, and so I had there started a, I realized I needed help with my issues around Vietnam and my upsets and fears. So I started a group for Vietnam veterans and it turned out to be very successful. Incredible. Uh, and went for three or four years and it met, meant, met way out in the countryside uh, in somebody's um, double wide trailer <laughs> uh, that was a mile away from the nearest neighbor but somehow or other, every Wednesday evening, anywhere from 15 to 25 Vietnam veterans would get together. Incredible. And talk and support each other and listen to each other. And it was not traditional group therapy. Yes. On one occasion, for example, one fellow who was new, who just arrived that night said, do any of you guys get nervous if you don't have a gun with you. <laughs> and it turned out that out of, I think, 18 in the room, everyone except myself had a weapon. There were six or seven guns, a bunch of knives, um, two guys had grenades, <laughs> and one guy had a Claymore mine out in his pickup truck. <laughs> and so 
the idea of doing group therapy <laughs> with that many weapons in that room. All no. of the rules say you can't do it, you shouldn't do it, and You're it's crazy. <laughs> or criminal. <laughs> right. And yet in three years, no problems, no fights, no threats, no nothing. It all worked beautifully. And that's a perfect example why you're on a podcast. That's a, you took a lemon and went to help yourself with it and created a love out of it. Something different. Yeah, something impactful. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating that, so at what time period from you exiting service to realizing that you need some further help? What, what was the time between that? It was uh, three years in Seattle and then to that wow. more rural place, Bellingham. And do you think, what do you think took, why do you think it took that amount of time for you to... I don't know. I just, know. It just, just did. did. And at some point I realized, I sorry, this traditional th psychotherapy wasn't We're, working for me. Yeah. Because I'd had plenty of psychotherapy for myself, but yeah. it was all around other issues. Yes. And so I um, heard about these groups uh, and said, okay, the way to f get one is to do it. And so I said, just put out the word. And within... Uh, two, three weeks, all of a sudden, the word among Vietnam veterans got out and they started to arrive and it just took off by itself. There was very little input on my part. And this is fascinating for me is uh, um, the generation I am, in my brain, I think of uh, a Facebook invite goes out to everyone and that's how they all get connected and we, it was just a completely word of mouth was mainly how it was oh yeah we didn't have anything computers and yeah. all of that stuff which shows the impact that it was do you think you're saying it's out rurally do you think that helped provide a safer space for these guys to be yeah. feel good yeah. to talk and stuff and then how did that lead you to New Zealand and furthering on well then I realized that okay I still had work on my own head and my own personal growth and development and I needed to learn something to do things better. Uh, and I had contacted yoga and Hatha yoga. And I remember the shock of that first yoga session when we had, uh, we were taken through these bends and these stretches and all of that. And then, uh, yoga nidra where you just lie down and he talked us through deep breathing and mind quieting and bam that got me it was the first time since military service that i had been able to get my mind quiet without drugs or alcohol and oh that's what i need and so i kept doing yoga the whole time and finally said, okay, this is so much better. Um, I've got to go in that direction more. And bumped into, found out about, and uh, engaged with a yoga community on the East Coast. And so I went there. What was the attitude towards yoga at the time? And when, when was this? 
this was after five years in that in Bellingham in yes. the quieter, more remote part of Washington. Uh, and so I went there and I was with that group really for 12 years. Because even now, mindfulness yoga, stilling the mind, coming back within the body, even now it's definitely a bigger wave, but it's still got a lot of stigma towards it. And that it still seems like quite a big uphill battle for people talking about it. And you still get attitudes towards, even at my age, of it being left field to even look at, particularly if you're battling with anything mental health. So it's fascinating to me that you were doing it all the way then and that if we've still got the stigmas now, mm -hmm. there must have been a huge there was. attitude towards it. And s there will be for a while. Mental health and psychiatry and the treatment of mental health are in some ways way behind the rest of medicine. We don't have any good tools, uh, or not many, uh, for treating things. Um, we've got some medications and they're electroshock. Yeah. And ballpoint pen uh, <laughs> very true and so talk therapy and uh, electroshock and medications are it yeah and the result is that um, successfully treating people with mental illness has not progressed a great deal the long-term outcomes, for example, of the treatment of schizophrenia mm -hmm. are about the same as they were 150 years ago. Now, the short-term treatment is better because we can throw medications and bring people down and help them to be quiet and calm and less violent and dangerous. But the long-term outcomes are about the same. That is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is a bit of tension between what some would say the holistic side of helping mental health and then the medical side. Do you think that there is, or did you ever experience people in your profession really anti or not wanting to incorporate things like yoga and mindfulness and meditation? And why do you think that is if there is? Well, there are people have... Individuals have all kinds of preferences and prejudices, and some people don't want to wear the color red, or some people don't want to um, talk about violence or any of those things. The trouble is that the color red and violence are around and not going away, and better be able to get along with them. A wee side question for you. Mm -hmm. For as long as I've known you, you've gone to church. Mm-hmm. Did you struggle, have you always gone to church? No. No? Was church pre or post yoga? Both. Both. And did you find, did you struggle having both in your life? Well, uh, through, you know, I was brought up in a church as a child and I did this and I did that. And then somewhere in adolescence, somewhere or late in my early 20s or something, I said, that's bullshit. <laughs> um, religion is ridiculous and wrong and yep. bad. 
And uh, no, I'm not going to do it. No. And then um, it was essentially yoga that brought me back into religion and Christianity because yoga is uh, based in large part on Hindu thought. And so being in a group that talked and taught using Hindu tradition and literature brought me back in and finally, oh, now I see what the Christians are talking about. <laughs> oh, that's wow. what they're talking about. Huh, I'll be damned. And so I was able to get back into Christianity, but from this very other perspective. I would have never expected that to be the answer at all. Yeah, so it was yoga and Hindu thought that helped me to become a Christian. And since then, um, I'm back in, in a sense, but always out. That makes any sense. That makes sense to me. Well, it means that traditional churchgoers look at me and my life experience and my views of Christianity and the Bible, and sort of, sort of, you know, sort of, yeah. you're a weird one, aren't you? Yeah. But uh, generally tolerate me. Mm-hmm but certainly don't agree with me. That's a fascinating journey in itself. Mm-hmm. But it means it's I have a very different view of the Bible and what it's all about than most of my Christian, especially the educated, you know, the priests and the yes. people who've got, done deep studies in Bible and history and Christianity. Um, we often have very different views on things. Did you find a big sense of community entering back into religion and entering back into going to church and stuff, no, or because no, of no. those? No, at all. No, really? uh, not not at all. Um, I found community, and I found people I love and who love me and who support me, and don't understand me. For example, the uh, Adam and Eve story most people know about. And most people see it as God said you shouldn't eat that, and they did, and they were wrong, and they got thrown out. And that's, a, you know, you should be good, and you should do what God says. Not at all. <laughs> to me, the Adam and Eve story, the statement is, do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Huh? Wow. Do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And most people say that that's, you know, sort of wishy-washy stuff and doesn't mean anything. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> it's the core. Do not be nourished by knowledge of good and evil. Huh? Does that mean I shouldn't be against good or evil or you know? No, 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 no. It means that when you get into a good and evil split, I'm good, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm good, you're evil. Mm-hmm. You have lost something big time. Every time. And 
you will be thrown out of something beautiful, which is what happened to Adam and Eve, and they bought it, and they got into knowledge of good and evil, at which point they knew that they were naked and did something about it, put on a fig leaf. <laughs> God comes into the garden, and God's first question about them is a knowledge question. How did you know you are naked? Okay, so God's working on this thing. Hey, guys, knowledge of good and evil and seeing yourself and others in terms of good and evil. I'm good, you're evil. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Every time, always. Which theologically it puts me somewhere close to heresy. And then Adam and Eve leave Eden and start a family. And surprise, surprise, their first two children, Cain and Abel, are good and evil. Huh. And evil kills good. And then God has to put a special mark on him saying, don't touch this guy so that others don't do evil to evil. Don't kill him. Okay, but what I'm talking about is, is close to heresy. Uh, it's theologically, I suspect, very incorrect. But it's fascinating. And that that whole... Like, I've just had so many light bulbs, mm -hmm. connections connect in my brain. The, the knowledge of good and evil. To not okay, but watch out. Yeah. You are stepping into what might be called evil. And I am <laughs> teaching evil to some of your viewers. Watch out. Perspective. So I apologize to anyone out there who I don't. is <laughs> offended by what I have just said. How did that impact your career? Well, it meant that when I see people who have uh, done all of these nasty things and see people um, who have been mentally ill and have done this or done that, I do not see it in terms of right and wrong. It doesn't mean you are bad. It means to me that at that moment, doing that thing was the most sensible thing you could think of in your world. Which includes a lot of really nasty things. But in mental illness and within, when you're struggling in your own brain, it is incredible and you see it time and time again with suicide rates as well, of what you just said, what seems reasonable in that point it is crazy. Well, crazy is not the right word to use there. But many people would see suicide or murder as wrong, yeah. bad, evil. You are an evil person. And I see you are a person in great pain who has done things that I suspect you would rather not have done. But at the time, it was all you saw yeah. as possible. Which you can see how much that applies into when you're helping people, particularly with PTSD as well. Or with anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The idea that I will go out of my way 
and be helped by some nice people to go to prison to see some guy who is in for murder. Um, I think the guy's beautiful. I think the guy's thing. I think yep. He, yeah, there are mistakes in there, but yeah, hmm. yep. I can see why you're so good at your job. Well, we're so good at your job, Thor's. Mm -hmm. That was just the most beautiful tangent we could have ever gone on. Um, like literally. <laughs> well, you didn't expect somebody to teach you Bible stories, oh, did you? But it's it's the beauty of this. I have people who I watch on podcasts who mm -hmm. have said whether you have anyone listening or not to put this on because the conversations that will come from it mm -hmm. is some that will, may never occur anywhere else, mm -hmm. and that's saying something because we've had some amazing conversations across tables throughout my lifetime. Mm -hmm. I'll kickstart this to say I've experienced a lot in my life and heard through you and many other people, and people will know this, um, the stigma within New Zealand towards mental health, particularly mm -hmm. males and particularly mm -hmm. the southern men and male attitude of rugby, drink beer, farmers don't express emotions. And I think the older I've gotten, the southern aspect of that, it's seems more and more, particularly after travelling, a Kiwi thing. How did you, did that, did you, were you aware of that before you hit New Zealand? No. Nope. But I bumped into it quickly. Yeah. I remember at the, after I'd been here and working for three months, I went up to someone and said, what am I doing wrong? I've been here for three months and no one has threatened to kill me. <laughs> Because yeah. in the U.S., saying, I want to kill you, you know, if yeah. you don't this, I want to kill you, is a statement of intention, uh, of emotion, and of the intensity of emotion. But it doesn't mean there is an intent to do the act. And here, uh, or at least in Southland, where I work mostly, um, I'm going to kill you is a very scary statement. Um, and it's forbidden. And I remember you said this to me a few weeks ago, and I've been thinking about it a lot in the aspect that you're right. I In New Zealand, it doesn't really come up in conversation. I will I'll kill you. But I've been in many conversations with Kiwis where if it's getting heightened, if something's going on, along the lines, someone will say, oh, I'm just going to kill myself or I'll just jump off a ledge or I'm going to throw myself off a cliff. And to me, that's fascinating that it's re almost reverted. And instead of getting rid of the person in front of me or the situation, I'm just going to completely take myself out, which is fascinating when you look at our mental health and our suicide rates and how we tackle that. Mm -hmm. So why Invercargill? Why Southland? Well, all the, um, my life on the East Coast and in that yoga community collapsed at some point. Uh, one of the rules in the yoga group, uh, the community, was um, you're either married or celibate. Wow. And while there are many, many uh, people who didn't quite manage that, um, those were the rules. At some point, five or six women got together and each said to the other, oh, the guru did it to you too, huh? At which point, the whole community exploded. Wow. 
that's a shattering thing to happen. Right. And at the same time, I'd had my land on the west coast and yes. where I live, uh, and I'd have a house built. And this lovely, not large, house was just sitting, waiting for me. And so the that collapsed, and I said, okay, I'll go try that. And in my biz, um, it's easy to find work because yes. um, the people need that, especially people with at, you know my level of experience. So getting a job is easy. It doesn't pay all that well, but it's easy to get a job, and I did. So I was there, and sort of looking around to see where I might work in Washington State, and this friend from the East, uh, was in Invercargill, um, where he'd taken a job, and he called me and said, Hey, Mort, we need you, and you're going to love this place, so why don't you come on over? And I did. And it took months to get through the paperwork and get registration and all of that good stuff, but I and get a visa. But I did, and I went to Invercargill agreeing to stay for six months, and I stayed for three years just because I fell in love with wow. Invercargill. And that was 96? I arrived in 96, yes. yeah. Um, to provide some context of how you came into my life, mm -hmm. Dad had a friend, Lucy Diva, mm -hmm. and you knew Lucy, worked with Lucy. Right. And the conversation occurred because you were in Invercargill, correct me where you'd need here, that could you go stay with Dad for a weekend? Well, um, yeah, it yeah was, uh, um, she and he were Living in the same house, uh, and she had invited me over for dinner or something like that, and I met your father, and bing, we connected easily and quickly. Yeah. Uh, and then she left, and he and I became closer friends. And so throughout my life, mm -hmm. Mort has come around the Christmas period, mm -hmm. and you have come, stayed with us from usually in the weekends. Mm -hmm. um, and so my whole entire life, Mort has been a reoccurring thing to the point where I have almost my whole community will be like, is Mort over here at the moment? Is Mort staying? A very different flatmate to what most would be. Mm -hmm. What would major differences or shock value, I guess we kind of have touched on it, coming from all your background, all your study, all your experiences to then enter New Zealand? And what did our mental health system look like when you came in? Well, mental illnesses are the same everywhere. Yes. Uh, the cultural expression of them is different. If, for example, saying, I, I want to kill you, mm -hmm. is absolutely forbidden uh, in this country. With the exception of two maybe three, but certainly two, who really tried to kill me. <laughs> but they did it in the Kiwi style. <laughs> oh, what's that? Uh, with charm. <laughs> the uh. last guy who tried to kill me um, <laughs> was this big guy who worked in the freezing works and lifted big heavy things and put them, I don't know where, but yeah. he was big, strong guy, very pleasant, had no prior mental history of mental illness but he hadn't slept for three days or something like that 
had seen him in the police cells and saw what the problem was and said, look, if he can sleep through the night, he can go home, but if he can't, he better come in to us. He didn't, and he came to us, and but he was clearly dangerous. Um, and so there was a cop here and a <coughs> very muscular nurse there, and he was, you know, three, four meters away from me in front. And he very calmly explained to me that he had to kill me <laughs> because I was his dead brother with a mask on, and so he had to kill me and take the mask off. And I said, no, and he jumped at me and knocked me off the chair, and then uh, the cop and the other guy got him down. And so we were able to, um, you know, I gave him medication and he was able to sleep, and uh, I was able to discharge him within a week. Um, because he'd been able to get to sleep, he'd been able to put it back in perspective. I talked about the risks, you know, you'll be just fine as long as you stay away from alcohol and drugs and you get sleep. And if you miss a night's sleep, you take these extra pills. And if you miss two nights sleep, you call us and you come in and get seen right away. And he did. Uh, and he did the other things like talking it over with his neighbors and making sure others were aware of the risks. Well, that's fascinating to think that if you weren't there to cross paths that he might have become that 3%. Well, um, the after I discharged him, the people who were most upset with me were the police and the hospital administration because they both have rather strict rules about attempted murder. Um, they're again it. They're not in favor of that stuff. But he went out and everything worked and I followed him for a few weeks and then I came back six months later and saw him again a few times and everything was working just fine. So I didn't see, yes, it was attempted murder, but I didn't see any big benefit to taking him to courts and putting him in prison and all of that stuff. He just needed help. But you who watch may have seen me talk about a crime I committed <laughs> by not sending him off to jail or whatever. No, not at all. I was a person who needed help. Whatever you do for people who attempt murder <laughs> in this country. Coming over and settling in and spending three years, particularly in Invercargill, I think some people will be shocked that you enjoyed Invercargill as much as you do. I love do. Invercargill. I think it's a great place. There is a big stigma surrounding Southland and mental health. There is. Was that something that was very prevalent and known when you first came? Or I wasn't aware of it. No. I just know I was going to work in this place where I knew some guy yeah. and his wife and loved them both. Uh, and it was interesting. It was good because in Southland I could do the community mental health stuff more than I could at any other place I'd worked before or since, uh, but it meant that I could get to know the GPs, I could get to know the schools, I could get to know the police, I could get to know the churches, and uh, talk with them about what mental health is, what treatments are, what works, what doesn't work, and what, how I might be useful to them, and what I might need from them but it meant that by the time I had been working there for a while, within two phone calls, I could find someone who personally knew anybody with mental illness out there. 
and could find out what's going on and what's happening and what can we do. And um, so it meant there was very early intervention rather than waiting until somebody was violent and dangerous. Ambulance at the end of the hill. Mm -hmm. Or the cop at the end of the hill. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How has it changed from when you first entered to, say, now or when you were last there? How has what changed? Kind of, one, do you think the mental health um, and illness issues have grown or shrunk and how the system deals with them or the support that they have yeah. there? Um, well, when I arrived, I was one of three psychiatrists, uh, two adult psychiatrists and one child psychiatrist in all of Southland, and now there are eight or nine. So there are a lot more uh, services at that level. Uh, but mental illness essentially never goes away. And uh, yeah, there's still, and whether there's more or less, I okay. don't have the numbers to say. Do you think as we expand as a society and the, I guess, knowledge or understanding surrounding a lot of this expands, do you think that it's more us understanding and getting a glance at what the iceberg is when we only saw the tip of it? Or do you think that it's a lot worse? No, no, no. I think it, uh, in a sense it hasn't changed. As yeah. I was saying before, yeah. uh, the treatment of very chronic illnesses is the same as it was 150 years ago. Uh, or the outcomes are the same. The treatments may be a little bit different, but not much. Why do you think it hasn't progressed? And do you think it will progress at some point? Yes. I think uh, it, it's likely. Um, the modern technology, the brain scans and beginning understanding of the various parts of the brain and interactions and how they develop and how they evolve through a normal lifetime um, will eventually lead to significant changes. If you are prepared to tell the story, I've always heard the story and the power in you being able to sit and just think you're weaving or knitting mm -hmm. and how it helped someone be prepared to talk. It was particularly, I've always heard it was a female that you sat with. Well, uh, it's helped with several, but I remember one older woman who would never talk with a psychiatrist and wouldn't talk with me. And so I was getting a little bored. And so I took out my knitting and started knitting. And she said, oh, you knit too? And then we started chatting about knitting. And from there, we could go and wow. ch talk about anything else as long as I was knitting the whole time. And if I stopped knitting, she'd freeze. Do you think that just helped provide a human aspect to you? That yeah, apparently. Why do you think our attitude, stigma, our environment and situation surrounding mental health here is so different to that of elsewhere? If you have any It isn't idea. any different. No. It's exactly the same. Everywhere has the same fears and it in my my guess is it's largely related to the lack of success in certain kinds of in in treatment. We we can provide some services. We can get some ways 
we can't get as much or as far or as fast as we'd like. And so when there isn't a clear, you know, if you say you go to the doctor for this and any infection, you know, now you can be pretty sure that the doctor will be able to fix, clear up the infection. But before, when doctors couldn't do it, getting a cough or a sneeze was sign of some evil in you. And so people who sneezed and coughed, you know, the expression, God bless you, mm-hmm. after somebody sneezes, comes from that age when a sneeze meant you might be dying okay. and might be in contaminating anyone around you. Or the children's uh, game, Ring Around the Rosy, Pocket yeah. Full of Posies. It's from the play. That's from the yeah. play. Yeah. And ashes, ashes, we all fall down, as in we're all dead. <laughs> yeah. Lovely little lullaby there. Um. Okay, now people get an infection and a sneeze and a cough, and yeah. people don't get upset by it. Yeah. Because there is a proven well-known set of treatments Um, but the same is not there yet for mental health and so we're still in the middle ages we're still in fear yes and i guess the more you hear you talk about for example the guy not sleeping and the situation where mental health can lead and that perspective of good and bad coming in again is no surprise with that fear and why it's there at It would all. be very easy to say that the guy who tries to kill me and damn near succeeded um, was evil and wrong and bad. But he wasn't. And if I had done that, I'm right, you're wrong, and threw him in prison, that would be a fairly traditional way of coping with treating somebody who attempts murder. There is this other way, yeah. but not many people go that way, and I have been criticized for having gone that other way. Yes. Throughout your career, what was, was there support there? Were you taught how to support your own mental health? Whilst I don't quite understand your question. Did you, um, did you have ways in which you either taught or did you learn to protect your mental health when holding quite heavy and dealing with heavy situations and experiences and dealing with other people's mental health? Some people would say, no, I didn't, and that I am weird and wrong and bad. And But to me, I've lived a full, happy life. I've thoroughly enjoyed meeting all of these fascinating folk that I've worked with. Uh, I've worked in and out of jails and prisons a fair amount and fascinating, good people there. I thoroughly enjoy them. Awesome. Including the one or two who tried to kill me. We will touch on what the big twist that came again, which I think for a lot of people wouldn't be able to believe that something, another lemon can come into your life the way in which it did. And that was the crash. Mm-hmm. that you experience all the way on the other side of the world in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And from what I know about this crash, because it actually came up in conversation a few days ago of explaining it from Dad's per- 
perspective, which was the first time I'd ever heard him talk about it, mm. was it was such an extreme crash that you were one of the first people that they had to use the jaws of life on and that there were bets between the paramedics on whether you would have lasted the night or not, which I think to the viewers would explain the situation that it was. Yeah, after I was five months in hospital and then took a while to get back into work and all that, but did. And two years later, I went to see the St. John's folks who had taken care of me yes. and to say thank you. And they used that time to review what they had done because all of that talking to each other is uh, by radio or telephone or whatever they did is all recorded someplace. And so they could go over the whole episode and try and do it again uh, and think it through. And I learned that, because I was knocked out, I didn't remember yep. any of it, um, but I learned that it had taken them an hour and a half to get me out of the car. And um, I spoke with one guy, he said, I, will, I was on your left foot and it kept getting colder and colder and colder. And I learned, they told me then that uh, they had uh, been given this equipment or, two years before and had been practicing and practicing it, but I was their first save. All of the others had died. And wow. so when I was sent off on the helicopter, apparently they had bet as they generally did. And um, it was a 50-50 bet whether I would survive the night. And no one was willing to bet that I'd keep my legs. And you have... Five months in hospital. And how much metal got put in your lid? An extensive amount of metal is now... Well, enough that uh, when I went into prison, I triggered their electronic security mm -hmm. thing. And did people ever think you'd walk again? Well, they didn't think I'd live, let alone walk. walk. And they, you know, if I walked, they didn't think I would... Uh, be able to keep my legs, but uh, the surgeons did this miracle and they're still my legs. And it's fascinating, you mentioned earlier how you started to learn a bit more throughout your studies and furthering into your career about the connection between body and mind. Mm -hmm. And we, you mentioned yesterday how sitting for those five weeks changed your perspective incredibly and helped because you were all of a sudden on a very different side of become of the well uh, how being in hospital for five months not five weeks uh yes that Difference. changed uh, Everything. well uh, among other things at one point i was psychotic i was hallucinating um and so for a psychiatrist <laughs> to be hallucinating and delusional is not recommended it's yeah. not considered good. <laughs> would not recommend to a friend no. But I was, and yeah. I knew that I was, uh, and had to ask my f f another psychiatrist friend for help and saying, hey, I'm psychotic, help. And uh, I was in Christchurch, he was in Dunedin at the time, and uh, he got some colleague to come and see me who bing, crick, cleaned it up right yeah. easily. Do you think your all your knowledge, apart from that situation, just in terms of 
how you handled that injury helped. Helped what? Helped your mindset, helped how you... I find it fascinating that you are where you are mm-hmm. and you are able to do all that you've been able to do post that crash. Mm-hmm. Do you have any inkling to what helped or why you have been able to achieve all you've achieved post this well, injury? Uh, the big change was that from then on, when patients came and talked with me, I had a much different idea of what the whole medical establishment looked like, felt like, and how it was used. Um, And how scary it is. Because in mental health, uh, most of the time, people who come in, in my terms, don't know what the problem is. They know what they feel. They know what they're experiencing. But they can't. I have tools to see rather differently what the dynamics are that lead you to the point that you want to kill yourself or you want to kill somebody else or um, you want to leave your family because whatever. How has it been as you've progressed past the injury and everything else? Are there moments when you're doing the exercise that you do and the travel that you do are there moments where you're, you can't believe that you're doing what you're doing and you're able to... Well, do I don't believe any of it. <laughs> I don't believe I'm sitting here talking about this with you. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. What would you say to your past self or to someone who's just experienced or experiencing such an injury? Okay, I would say to people who are experiencing injury or virtually any other problem with intense emotional component to it, I'd say learn to use it. Don't run away from it. Learn to use this experience to improve yourself and improve others. Which is a great summary of Love Out of Lemons and a great thing to show what you've done throughout your whole life see the attitude between everything you've done Mm -hmm. and I'm not really in the position to do it but I am going to do it anyways thank you for taking the attitude towards your whole life you're welcome because you've impacted mine and you've impacted my father's I hope it's been in the healthy direction always do you have any final things you would like to say goodbye (laughs) bye thank you Thank you for choosing to tune into Love Our Lemons. Love Our Lemons is conversations where we raise awareness around the lemons life throws our way and how you can create love from these lemons. My mission is to positively change and challenge every aspect I can for future generations and all living things, including the planet itself. Starting with providing an environment for conversations about topics people struggle to whisper, let alone share publicly. I'm lifting up the carpet from what we've swept all this bullshit under. Lemons is about ensuring we can limit the amount of shit that people have to go through. And if they do have to go through it, they don't have to go through it alone. Whether it be charities to donate to, events to participate or support in, or merely a dialogue you can incorporate in your day-to-day use that makes someone feel seen and supported and heard where they once wouldn't have before, we want to provide this for you. I don't want people to walk away from these conversations feeling defeated. 
not knowing where to go or what to do and overwhelmed. I want to provide a space where you walk away with tools, actions, dialogue. We're sharing ours and many others climb up the mountain so it can be written in stone and shared through generations. So if I haven't said this yet, hey, I'm Han. I'm just a girl on a mission to change the world. And as cliche and cheesy as it may sound, I won't ask you to go easy on me, more so to join me, whether it be a minute, 10, or every episode. This is not a gift from me to you, but a gift from you to me. Sharing your journeys, your battles, your scars, your survival guides. And to little hand, listening, believing, trusting and choosing to stay. Thank you. This is for you. From me.